everyone. Welcome to the Cato Institute here in Washington, DC. I'm Kat Murthy, Cato's Senior Digital Outreach Manager, and you are at Cato Digital, an ongoing series of events on the intersection of tech, social media, and the ideas of liberty. Our hashtag for tonight is, as always, Cato Digital. You can use that to join the conversation on Twitter or Instagram. And those of you who are watching on one of our online platforms can also use that to tweet in questions. Uh, if you're in the studio audience today and you have Snapchat, please do check out our GeoFilter as well. Yesterday was an incredibly important uh, anniversary in American history. On December 5th, 1933, the 21st Amendment to the Constitution was ratified, supposedly ending our failed experiment with alcohol prohibition. However, 84 years later, we continue to suffer the hangover, both in policy and in culture, Every, with anything from blue laws and state-run liquor stores to the alcohol, uh, the alcohol choices that are available and the culture that surrounds drinking here in the United States. Our guests here tonight are going to be discussing some of the ways in which prohibition continues to impact us to this very day. Um, we're going to have plenty of time for you guys to ask questions, so please do continue to think of them. And again, anyone who's watching online, please tweet them in using Cato Digital. And with that, I'd like to introduce our first guest here today, David Osgo. David is Chief Economist for the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States here in Washington, D.C. Discus is a voluntary organization representing importers and distillers of distilled spirits, including 65% of all bourbon, scotch, vodka, rum, tequila, gin, and brandy sold here in the United States. Uh, you can find David on Twitter as at DOSGO. David, how has the legacy of prohibition negatively impacted and caused discrimination against spirits consumers here in the US? Well. The big legacy of prohibition, a lot of people don't realize this, but government regulation dramatically affects what you drink. It affects your consumer choice. And really to a large extent, this discrimination really started even before the official end of prohibition. We celebrated on December 5th, but as a practical matter, the prohibition on beer and certain wines ended way back in March of 1933. Spirits had to wait until December. So, this manifests itself in a number of ways throughout the country. First off, I don't know if you've ever tried to buy spirits, but it's not nearly as easy if you're trying to buy beer and wine. And in fact, nationwide, there are typically three beer outlets and three wine outlets for every single spirits outlet. Now, that's when we talk about off-premise, when you're looking at buying, uh, buying product for consumption at home. On-premise, it's not quite as bad, but there still is discrimination. So there's the number of outlets. Uh, secondly, to make matters worse, there are still 11 states today where you cannot buy spirits on Sundays for off-premise consumption. Uh, that's, that's, that's pretty amazing, the biggest market now being Texas. And then when you look at taxation, uh, spirits are taxed at various levels, the federal level, the state level, and in some instances, the local level. Well, at the federal level, the, you would, you, now you would, naturally expect the tax on spirits to be a bit higher uh, because after all the alcohol content is higher. But even after you adjust for the alcohol differences, differences in alcohol content, at the federal level, uh, spirits are twice at double the rate of beer and almost three times the rate at wine. 
This is repeated then oftentimes when you look at the states. Uh, additionally, uh, you, you still have seven, well, you have 17 states out there, uh, like Virginia, like Montgomery County, where there is what we call a state-sponsored monopoly. Now, in some instances, the state will have monopoly on beer and wine as well, but for the most part, it's just on spirits. Uh, what the, now, obviously, any state, constitutionally, they're free to have any kind of regulatory scheme that they wish. And if they want to have a monopoly on spirits, that's their prerogative. But how this manifests itself is that whereas nationwide you have three beer outlets for every single spirits outlet, in these monopoly states, there are six beer outlets for every single spirits outlet. Uh, additionally, when you look at the taxes, the tax rates tend to, tend to double. Uh, Finally, when you look at uh, areas such as right now, there are a lot of uh, almost every state, I for, uh, forget the exact number, I think it's 45, 47 states, you can get wine shipped directly to you. Well, that's not the case with spirits. It's more, more like three or four states, perhaps five, depending on how you want to count. So ultimately, even though you might not realize it, every day the government and regulation dictates what you can buy and what you enjoy. Thank you, David. I think those are some really interesting points I'm looking forward to digging into later. Um, our next and final guest for this evening is uh, Peter Suderman. Peter is, the, uh, sorry, Peter is the features editor at Reason, and he writes regularly on healthcare, tech policy, pop culture, and the federal budget. He's also somewhat of a cocktail aficionado and recently wrote a fascinating feature for Reason magazine called Government Almost Killed the Cocktail. You can find Peter on Twitter as at Peter Suderman. Peter, tell us a little bit about how prohibition has impacted, in a negative way, um, the culinary arts culture and the drinking culture around cocktails, even past prohibition. Yeah, so we all know, uh, you know, sort of the, the primary effect of prohibition was that alcohol was, uh, you couldn't sell it. You couldn't buy it. You couldn't make it in most cases. There were some exceptions. Um, and we also know that then sort of the, the knock-on effect of that was that it created a huge black market. It didn't actually stop people from drinking. What it did was it funneled the profits from drinking into the hands of criminals, and it made the alcohol itself uh, of often not very good quality. Um, what people, I think, don't pay atten enough attention to was the effect that prohibition had on drinking as an art and drinking culture. And so if you go back in the 20 to 80 years before prohibition happened, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, uh, America had this really thriving, lively cocktail scene. They had celebrity bartenders who made crazy drinks, like the Blue Blazer, which was Jerry Thomas's special, uh, with it. you would actually sort of throw the liquor between the, the bottles and it would be on fire. And I mean, guys were, there were guys who were making really very large amounts of money for the time uh, doing this. And I mean, it was a, just a sort of a, an, a lively and creative culinary art. And you can really make the case, I think, that it was the most, that it was the original American culinary art. That this is where uh, American culinary thinking started was behind the bar. And it was very precise. It was about uh, measurements. It was about, uh, and even more than that, it was about using good spirits and finding ways to show them off. And then what happened was, in 1920, 
there weren't any more spirits that you, uh, to show off to the extent that you could get them. Like I said, they were very often of very low quality. Certainly, you couldn't have any guarantee that it was going to be good stuff. Even the good stuff was often watered down. And so what happened was, yes, there was still a kind of a cocktail culture. It went underground in speakeasies. But to the extent that it existed, cocktail culture became about hiding the spirits, about hiding liquor, about because you never knew if it was going to be any good. And so what happened during that period was we lost a lot of the knowledge, a lot of the kind of artistic theory and ideas that went into and built cocktails uh, as, a, as a culinary art in the years before Prohibition. And when Prohibition ended, it wasn't like, oh, well, we all remember what we used to do. In fact, what had happened was that uh, that a lot of the people who practiced this stuff had retired. A lot of them were older men. Um, many of them had gone to Europe, so people, so they just weren't around anymore. And then in addition, you just didn't have the stock because spirits often take many years to age. And so there was a big drawdown of aged spirits. Also, the trade supply lines to get a lot of this kind of interesting liqueurs and sorts of things from Europe, uh, those didn't exist anymore. And so what happened after Prohibition was drinking got kind of bad. And it stayed bad for decades. And I think, you know, sort of the, uh, the drink that really stands out to me as like the ultimate bad drink is the Long Island iced tea. It's a, like a 70s <laughs> creation. And it's really, I mean, it's like a spirits dumpster. It's here's what I've got. Let's put it all together, right? That's not what cocktails were before Prohibition. And that's not what cocktails should be. And it's only been in the last 20 years or so that a couple of bartenders starting in New York uh, went and said, let's go look at some of these old cocktail books from before Prohibition and let's see what we can do. And so there's been this whole movement and now you, uh, to create uh, start, that started with creating kind of uh, replica pre-Prohibition cocktails. and with uh, replicating both kind of the aesthetics, but also the techniques. I mean, the people using ice in different ways. Uh, ice pre-prohibition was a big deal. The, you'd, like where you would get your ice from, which, uh, which lake or stream, you know, the, the, the block of ice was cut from. And there was, you know, sort of various ideas about, oh, well, this is the really good stuff. And this is the stuff that eh, we, we wouldn't want it from that river. And so we've gone back to a lot of those ideas and then expanded on them. But what happened, uh, after Prohibition was that people just lost a lot of what it meant to make, a, a lot of the, the theory, a lot of the practice, a lot of the ingredients, a lot of the stuff that went into making good drinks. And so what I want to stress more than anything is that it wasn't just that we enabled crime. It wasn't just that we stopped some people from drinking some of the time and made it harder to get access to booze. It wasn't even that just that we lost uh, access to certain spirits because of the drawdown. It was that we lost kind of the idea and the theory behind what a good cocktail is supposed to be, which is a showcase for really good liquor um, balanced between some other flavors. And uh, for far too long, uh, cocktails were about hiding, hiding spirits and hiding liquor, and you use the bad stuff because that was what you had on hand. And the whole idea of a cocktail was, well, we, we just, you know, we'll, we use the, the cheap stuff uh, and nobody will know. And the, that's the whole goal. And I think that that was, um, I think that was something, it's something important that we lost and that we've only just started to regain. Um, and so, you know, 
the uh, uh, things like prohibition, restrictions like prohibition, end up having these long tail effects not only on sort of the direct market itself, but on culture and on how we think about what what uh, what art and um, and and uh, sort of culture should be. And that's a that's the sort of that's something that people don't think about enough uh, when it comes to when it comes to laws generally, but certainly when it comes to prohibition. So that actually that. Brings to mind, uh, I'm going to pose a fun thought experiment. Uh, I don't know how often you guys hear those words, but fun thought experiment. They're all fun, especially <laughs> when they involve cocktails. <laughs> there you go. There you go. All cocktails are fun thought experiments. What might American drinking culture look like in a world in which prohibition had never happened? Oh, gosh. Well, right off, I would say that you would probably have a lot more people uh, enjoying spirits, uh, you wouldn't. Uh, spirits has been gaining market share from beer and wine for the last 15 or 20 years. Coincidentally, as Peter said, over the very time where we've returned to a cocktail culture. Uh, but more importantly, uh, Peter is exactly right. When you look at some of the very early days after prohibition, uh, you know, oftentimes you saw a lot of blended whiskey. Now there are some very, very good blended whiskeys out there, but you tended not to have nearly as much bourbon. Well, that was because you simply didn't have the stocks to offer people bourbon. So I think over time, you, as we are getting more and more in, back into a cocktail culture, it's what we would have had in a true, had prohibition not occurred, which is people enjoying better cocktails than they ever have. And as Peter pointed out, drink the good stuff. Enjoy yourself. <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, I, I, if you uh, sort of keep up with the cocktail nerd, bartender theorist community, which exists, uh, I promise you, um, you, you will hear uh, people talking about sort of us being in like a second wave of modern cocktail culture right now. And where it really sort of, uh, there was the first wave kind of from 99 or so up through somewhere between 2007 and 2010. And then starting in 2010, you really saw this boom where uh, most American cities ended up having a, a really serious, high-quality craft cocktail bar. And from there, it's sort of taken off, and we've sort of moved past just replicating uh, pre-prohibition drinks into doing a lot of really original and, and sort of more innovative stuff. We would be on, like, the seventh wave right now, and we would, or the twelfth, or whatever it is, right? And we wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't have had to spend 10 or 15 years going back and rediscovering really some very basic spirits. Rye whiskey, for example. Probably uh, lots of people in this room have had rye whiskey take its existence for granted, but um, it basically disappeared, not entirely, but it came very close to disappearing from the American market for decades. Uh, and in particular, a lot of the kind of, uh, you can think of them as Acela Corridor rye whiskeys, Maryland rye whiskeys, uh, a few of which still kind of sort of exist. Um, but those were considered the, the height, the peak of great whiskey pre-prohibition. And a lot of pre-prohibition cocktails were made with rye rather than bourbon. And so even if you were having uh, variations on a Manhattan in 1985 or the early 90s, you were probably getting it with bourbon rather than with rye as it was originally made. And so we would never have lost all that stuff. We never would have, you know, we wouldn't, we'd be much further along in sort of our thinking about uh, how this how this stuff works. Um, in some ways, you can look at a, a country like Japan, which has an unbroken chain, and where a lot of American craft cocktail bartenders have gone to look at their techniques and see what they do. And it's gotten mm -hmm. 
in kind of, uh, as you might expect, it's gotten extremely fussy. Um, but also, I mean, really, uh, really just sort of beautiful and ornate and intricate and uh, in, in ways that we're only just starting to see in the United States. And I think we would have seen that decades ago. And I, I don't know where it would have gone from there, but it, we, we would have progressed even further. So one of the things that I find really interesting that people sort of gloss over when we're thinking about prohibition, I think you've both kind of touched on this a lot, is um, how much knowledge was really lost, right? And so I'm wondering, you, bo both of you have talked about how um, spirit, spirits culture, cocktail culture, has sort of started to reclaim a lot of this old knowledge. Um, and I'm sure, uh, Peter, you probably did a lot of research into this as well when you're writing your article for Reason. How exactly are they going back and finding out things, such as, oh, this was a liquor that we used to have we no longer have? Or one of the things I find interesting is the, the switch in American drinking styles from cider to beer, those kinds of things, right? Uh, so this, uh, this is really fascinating. It's, really, it's super fun. I mean, part of it is just going back to the recipe books and looking in particular at a bartender named Jerry Thomas, who is really sort of the, uh, the, the dean of the, of the cocktail, right? He's the guy who invented the cocktail as we know it. Um, and he wrote a, a, a book called uh, The Bon Vivant's Companion or How to Mix Drinks. Uh, there's, it sort of goes by a couple of different titles depending on which version you go, uh, you, you look at. But um, he was a, a, a bartender in the late 1800s and he was sort of the first published uh, bar, first person to publish a, a sort of a, a major book. cocktail book. Mm -hmm. uh, and we'd gone back and just looked at what he, what, what recipes he was publishing and how he made, and how he did stuff. But the other thing that people have done, uh, some of the cocktail historians, yes, this is a real job that uh, at least one person <laughs> in the world has, uh, thank goodness. Um, what they've done is they've gone through uh, through old spirits collections. And they found people who have, you know, there's a guy uh, in, in the New Orleans area who has one of the biggest, maybe the biggest collection of, uh, of, of old, not old as in like this has been aged for 15 years, but as in this bottle was originally sold in 1912 old. And they've gone back and tasted pre-prohibition liquor and then tried to figure out, okay, what, how can, what is this flavor what is profile? This? And they've done a couple of things. They've done things like, well, let's figure out if we can just blend some stuff that exists and get something like that. But in a couple of cases, they've actually gone to producers and they've said, this is the flavor profile that we're trying to replicate. Let's bring something like this back to the market. And so there are products that have basically been brought back to the market in the last few years that you couldn't get. Um, that you more or less couldn't get or you couldn't get at all in some cases uh, for decades. And this is part of what we've seen um, along with the, the craft cocktail boom is that it has gone hand in hand with a spirits boom and a production boom uh, where, and this is something I know that you can talk about a, a lot where you've just, you just mm -hmm. have so much more variety uh, and so much, I mean, whether it's in terms of uh, different flavor profiles, but also at different price points. Um, and so there's just so much stuff that we've, that, that's come online that didn't exist before, thanks to really a pretty small group of people who have decided that that stuff was awesome and we should all be drinking it, and they're right. Yeah, it's interesting. As the market has grown over the years and you've gotten back to a cocktail culture, there is just incredible experimentation going on out there today. You know, even if you look at some of the older historic brands, they will all have uh, different uh, uh, 
shoot uh, spinoffs where they're doing different things with different aging. You look, look at a lot of uh, scotches today or, or in the Uni United States bourbons where you know, you're taking a basic bourbon and maybe aging it in sherry casks. So there's a lot of experimentation out there, which in turn gives you access to a lot more flavor profiles, which, you know, it's, I've said this before, this is probably, uh, we're getting to the point where you, the current consumers have never had so much choice. Uh, and it's, it's really a good time in the United States to be a whiskey drinker. That's good for me. Glad um, to keep you happy. Um, so this has been a very positive note, but we are still seeing a lot of prohibition era policies in our country. Um, what specific laws or policies continue to echo prohibition today? And are these new policies, are these new regulations, or are they ones that have really just been a holdover from the late 20s, early 30s? Well, I touched upon a number of them uh, it, it, earlier on. Uh, you still have a lot of states where you can't buy on Sundays. Well, as a practical matter, uh, Sunday, depending upon which survey you look at and you know, to the extent that surveys are accurate, Sunday is the second business shopping day of the week. So if you can't buy something when you're out shopping where there's a good chance you're not necessarily going to consume it because after all, spirits are about fun. Obviously, spirits, cocktails, they're not bread. You don't necessarily need it. Uh, so as a result, that's one of the areas where there's a, there's a big holdover. Uh, additionally, I also mentioned the fact that you uh, can't buy spirits directly, uh, whereas you can wine. That's, now, the wine laws changed within the last 10 years or so, but the fact that uh, spirits were not included is really a, a holdover from prohibition. Mm -hmm. I would say you know, the three-tier system, um, I mean, that basically is that it exists in most states. Can you explain in, what in the three-tier system is? For which is uh, basically, so the end of prohibition was great. However, what we did with the end of prohibition was basically say, states, it's up to you. And so it, it was a devolution, uh, which was in, in, in many ways uh, good and productive, but it meant that prohibition kind of lingered in a state law form um, and we still see a, a lot of the kind of after effects of that. It's the, the ripple effects of prohibition are still with us today. And so a big, uh, one, of the, one of the ways that that is true is, is this three-tier system, which is more or less an enforced middleman system in which alcohol producers cannot sell to people who want to buy it. So it's, you can't just go to a distillery and buy, and, and buy their product. There's got to be a store, a distributor in the middle well, what about what about these distilleries that do tours, where you can buy something at the so end of the tour? Th there's there's uh, there's exceptions. It you know it depends on which right. state you're in, uh, exactly what the exceptions are. It's this doesn't I, like I I don't have the list in front of me. It's most states still have some sort of three tier system, I believe. Um, uh, virtually all states still have some sort of three tier system, and you know I will say, you know even if you didn't have the requirement of the three tier system in any given year there today there are around 9000 brands marketed wonderful for the consumer uh, but if you're trying to figure out the logistics of that 9000 brands you're looking at at least three bottle sizes that's at least 27000 SKUs it's a very complicated process now even I believe, even if you got rid of the requirement of the free tier system, and you know, personally, if if I were a wholesaler and someone said that my job existed only because of law, I would be insulted. 
So even if you got rid of the requirement of the three-tier system, the middlemen would still exist. Now, you would also have a lot more flexibility in the marketplace, which ultimately is good for the consumer. Yeah, I believe Washington state was the first and maybe the only state to completely get rid of uh, of, of the three-tier system. And you go to Washington State, and it's still, I mean, buying, buying alcohol there is more or less like it is uh, in most other parts of the country. One big difference that I notice when I go out there is that you can buy alcohol in a, uh, uh, in a, a grocery store or a drugstore. Um, and so there are, it, is the, there are, it is looser, it is more available, but it's not radically different. Um, but it does give people more options. And even more than, as much as giving consumers more options, it also gives upstart sellers more options. And so it creates opportunities for new entrants into the market and new business, uh, uh, sort of new business models. And I think that that is a good thing. I think that we've seen a lot of that already, uh, just, I mean, in terms of the experimentation um, with the product. But, we, but I would also like to see and like to see the opportunities for more experimentation with business and sales models. And I think that that, uh, a lot loosening uh, the, a lot of the state restrictions could give us, could give us a lot of experimentation on that front as well. So on, on loosening, um, so I grew up in Dallas, Texas, um, the city of Dallas, and Dallas County for the most part is not dry, but the area in which I grew up was dry. Um, not that it mattered, you could drive five minutes across the city line and right on the city line, literally on the city line is a beer and wine store. Right. Um, but a few fireworks. years ago, maybe, yeah, like Hopefully fireworks. you would get the two together. Yeah, you can't buy them, you gotta go outside of <laughs> Not city a very good idea. But, um, <laughs> but about five, maybe 10 years ago, it's been a little while, um, I went back for a visit and I walked into the grocery store and all of a sudden there was two whole aisles of just beer and wine, right? And so that's very interesting to me. Do you think that there's a similar pattern across the country of laws liberalizing or are we kind of moving in an anti-liberty direction on this? No, we're, we're definitely moving in the right direction. You mentioned uh, Dallas or, or Texas in particular. We've had a concerted effort across Texas over the last, I think it's five or 10 years to quote, wet up a lot of the Texas counties. You know, uh, point of fact, even though the county was dry, almost everybody uh, or 60, 70% of the population, in fact, wanted, uh, did drink. Uh, so as a result, you're just forcing people to drive across lines. You're making it inconvenient. So we had a program whereby there are a number of uh, local optional elections where we would work with uh, local sponsors. And I think uh, 99, 90, 95% of the time, the county would vote itself wet. Uh, so uh, that was a, that's been a very, very good development in Texas for the consumer, because all of a sudden, no, I, I don't have to drive to the next county or two counties over or whatever the case may be. Now, with regard to spirits in grocery stores, I thought it was interesting, uh, Peter, you mentioned that you were surprised to see spirits in grocery stores in Washington state. That was a benefit to the consumer there of privatization. Uh, when Washington State privatized, they went from being one of these state-sponsored monopolies to allowing private operators. And one of the changes in the law was that they allowed spirits to go into grocery stores. And in fact, uh, today there are 28 states that allow spirits in grocery stores in some form or fashion. So, it's often thought that, well, no, you can't buy spirits in grocery stores. Well, that's because too many of you all live in Virginia. 
but in fact, it's actually more common today to allow spirits in grocery stores than it is not. So it's been a very, very happy uh, evolution of the laws. Oh, that's fascinating. But as has become abundantly clear in this discussion, uh, alcohol laws very much follow a federalist pattern where we have not just laws uh, varying from state to state, but also county to county, local area to area, city to city. Um, has that generally been good for alcohol consumers or um, it, overall, would you say? Or do you think that that's not worked out as well? And um, w kind of connected to that, which areas are we seeing that are most restricted and which ones are free and is are freer? And is there a particular pattern to that? Uh, I would say it's been good for the alcohol consumer because, you know, I, even if you just allowed laws to each state to have its own set of laws, well, even at the state level, one size does not necessarily fit all. I mentioned earlier that we've gotten 17 states in the last so 15, 16, 17 years that now allow spirit sales on Sundays. Well, in a lot of states, you know, that was fine with the people in the urban areas, but not so fine sometimes in people in rural areas. Mm -hmm. So very often what we did is, like in Virginia, for instance, when we initially passed Sunday sales, uh, it started off as an experiment, I believe, in Northern Virginia and then perhaps in Norfolk as well. Uh, and then after a while, actually the Virginia ABC came to us and said, hey, can you, and I think they asked us to, to get Richmond uh, mm -hmm. as well. So when you have that kind of uh, local, uh, local option or- it's a model. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a model. Uh, it, it allows a lot of experimentation. It allows the people within a state uh, to get laws that are tailored to the locality as opposed to you know, being, uh, you know, come, coming down from high either from Washington or the state capitol. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it allows for incremental improvements that would be much more difficult without uh, incremental liberalizations, and mm -hmm. I, I should say, um, uh, which I consider improvements. And it, those would not be possible without uh, basically a sort of local control system. And um, that's not to say that there aren't, you know, that there are never downsides to it, but overall it's, I mean, in some sense it's necessary uh, and, it has up, and it has created the possibility space for both experimentation and, um, and, and increases in, you know, sort of consumer freedom. That's fabulous, I like freedom. <laughs> um, so, um, what would an ideal legislative and regulatory landscape around alcohol look like? Um, and what is the biggest hindrance to achieving it? Well, you know, the ideal landscape ultimately is whatever the local people want. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that, that, is, that is the ideal. You don't want to force laws upon people that aren't interested. Now, what is the biggest hindrance? Uh, I mean, clearly the biggest hindrance is always the laws that are in place. Once you set down a set of laws and business operators start working within those laws, well, gosh, what happens? You create some very, very vested interest in those particular laws. Now, to a large extent, uh, you know, you want to, you know, from a strict libertarian standpoint, and I know we just might have a few in the audience, uh, you Water want to field. say- Possibly on stage as well. <laughs> uh, you want to say, well, gosh, anybody that wants to get into the spirits, beer, or wine business ought to be able to do so. Uh, that's really an ideal. However, you have to realize that one that might not 
fit into local culture. Secondly, yeah, once you set the, down these laws, what if you're a package store and you just spent your life savings to get into the business, you just spent a half million dollars to buy a license from someone, and now all of a sudden, oh, gee, we're gonna change the laws on you. Mm -hmm. I've just spent my life savings, and I'm gonna be wiped out. Uh, you're, you have larger players come in, my, my half million dollar license is now worthless. So to a certain extent, the idea of having incremental change is really a good idea because it's fair to the locality, it's fair to the consumer as long as you allow that change, and that it's fair to that, that, that small operator who might have invested his life savings in a package store or some sort of business. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest barrier is incumbents and protectionism, and just the sense, uh, combined with a sense amongst a lot of lawmakers that alcohol is somehow different uh, meaningfully different from other products in the way that we should, uh, in the ways that we should think about regulating it. Um, and you know, so uh, there was a case not too long ago, just a couple of years ago in South Carolina, where uh, Total Wine, big uh, sort of a liquor booze distributor, um, wanted to open a fourth store. And the and South Carolina has a law on the books that says you can only have three outlets. And so they, they uh, Total Wine went to court over this because we were like, well, we want to order, four, we want to have four. And this, uh, and the defense of the three stores uh, rule was, well, you can't because we protect small business. That's it. It was just pure protectionism. And they, they basically said, well, it's it's alcohol, and therefore we can do whatever we want. And so we're going to protect a small business. And that sort of thinking still dominates all over the country now. In uh, good news, uh, Total Wine won this case, opened their fourth store. Um, and so that sort of uh, legal challenges, I think, are going to be, we're going to see more of them, and I think they're going to win um, as, as uh, basically courts start taking a look at these laws and saying these exist exclusively to protect incumbents. Um, and we won't, see, uh, we won't see as much of that anymore. Um, but that's, that dominates a lot of thinking, I, I think, in state houses about what sort of alcohol regulation is both acceptable and good. Yeah, and you know, that gets into, uh, you, you know, you, there are ways to expand the marketplace to allow more freedom without wiping out those small guys. Uh, there, there have been several states where they've been looked at including wine and spirits in grocery stores. Obviously, it's the package stores that uh, put up the biggest fight, and, and rightfully so if, if I were them. But then we've often suggested, you know, well, let's go to a medallion system. Let's, by X date, give everyone that's currently in the business two medallions so that they can have one and sell another or sell both for all that, you know, whatever they uh, so desire. Now. When you do this, liquor licenses, I know in Florida, they, I, I had one large package store owner tell me that he spends uh, as much as $600,000 per license in Florida. Uh, per now, store. Per store. Whew. Now, if he's telling me, if he's admitting to 600, I'm guessing he actually pays more than a million. Uh, but that just gives you some idea of what the value of these licenses can be. Uh, so, it, by you know allowing two licenses for everybody currently in the business and then opening it up to be purchased by say grocers or large package stores, it allows a hint of fairness. Now obviously you have to cap this at some point and you know say at the end of five or six years or whatever the case may be, we're going to allow X number of new licenses onto the marketplace. 
Nothing is ever ideal, but ultimately you want to do what's, what's fairest to everybody. So as long as people are willing to work, and fortunately, for the most part, people have been over the last 10 or 15 years as we've liberalized a lot of the laws, uh, you know, it, things have, have worked out fairly well. Now, from everything from Uber to Airbnb to TaskRabbit, we, we're moving in the direction of a sharing economy, right? And we've had some... We've had some companies attempt to do something similar for alcohol. We had Clink, which closed up. I think Delivery.com bought, bought their business. Um, there's a few others, but there's been a lot of restrictions on the growth in alcohol delivery because, in large part, the laws are so different from one area to another, including on the very micro level. Um, to what degree have these laws and regulations kept up with the technological development? Uh, well, I would say that is a big problem to a certain extent right now. Uh, probably the biggest alcohol delivery service uh, we have right now is an outfit called Drizzly. You can use them here in DC. I believe they're in 75 major markets, and when you look at what percentage of the country they cover, it's, it's, it's quite a bit. Uh, however, when you talk to the Drizzly guys, they will tell you we don't, don't deliver alcohol. Uh, they sell a license where they license with, uh, an off, with a package store. So they are actually working through the three-tier system right now. Uh, that gives them the ability. It now, obviously, there are a lot of localities where they are greatly restricted. Uh, so the laws are flexible, but it, it's interesting. Uh, I was actually on a panel before the NCSLA, National Council of State Legislators, State, essentially the people that regulate liquor, I forget what it, exactly it stands for, there are four or 500 of these state liquor re regulators in the audience, and they are fully cognizant of the fact that the laws and regulations that they are administrating right now are not keeping up with technology. And, you know... The response? Uh, well, the response is uh, they, they are very much interested in change. They are very much interested in modernizing the laws. They're cognizant of the fact that the, the current laws were written at the end of Prohibition, or many of them were, and we truly do need change. So it's not as bleak as you, you might think, uh, because there are a lot of people out there, a lot of regulators that are, in fact, looking to change the laws. Now, they're not exactly certain what to do, uh, so that they are, in fact, looking for guidance very often. Yeah, I mean, uh, you look at, uh, it's, there's the sort of in-town delivery services, not mm -hmm. delivery services like Drizzly, which is great and which uh, allows you to do all sorts of price shopping and also have de booze delivered to your house on Sunday so you don't have to leave the house. It's wonderful. Um, but, like, uh, but there's also a lot of online retailers who are trying to work across state lines right now, and they face a lot of restrictions. It's gotten looser. Uh, you know, if you go back a couple decades, it was nearly impossible to have alcohol shipped to your house uh, from, from out of state, and now it is more possible, though, the, though it depends on where you live. I have uh, a colleague who uh, works with me at Reason here, and we have an office in Washington, D.C., and he lives in Virginia and just has, uh, has cases of, uh, of, of, of good whiskey every now and then delivered to the office um, because you can get them delivered in Washington, D.C., and you can't in Virginia. And so, um, I, I mean, I think trying to figure out exactly how to, uh, how to smooth over the conflicts that arise when you have uh, state-based 
liquor regulations, when, when states are kind of the primary unit of, of liquor regulations, is going to be a big challenge uh, going forward. Definitely. Thank you. Well, I want to give the audience a chance to ask questions. And uh, of course, for anyone who's watching online, you can tweet that with Cato Digital. But before I do, we haven't really talked that much about prohibition itself. But what we do know is that prohibition made alcohol markets more violent. They made alcohol consumption much more dangerous. And uh, they, they led to the rise of organized crime in this country. And yet, as we sort of discussed, prohibition in very real ways is still active. What draws people to prohibition? What, what still makes these policies popular? Uh Probably one of the biggest drivers, I would say, unfortunately, is the public health community. Uh, many in the public health community, for whatever reason, or actually, let me say this, a certain faction of the public health community are very much anti-alcohol. Uh, now, if you're in public health, well, by definition, you need to have one-size-fits-all solutions. Mm -hmm. And public health inevitably has the same old kind of tired solutions that really don't work. Uh, high taxation, limited availability, or the one I always like is restrictions on advertising, you know, as if that's going to reduce abuse of drinking somehow. So I would say the people that are the biggest push, the people that are most interested in the prohibition type solutions are the public health community. And in some instances, I, I think it's just their own personal vested interest in an idea. Mm -hmm. Interesting will make it work even if it never has ever before. We are going to pound that square peg into the round hole. Uh, <laughs> if it, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you're, that we are on the verge of seeing a lot more pressure uh, than we have seen over the last couple decades to increase alcohol taxes. And I think that there will be, that we're already starting to see a push and that we will, continue, that we will see uh, an additional push. And frankly, I think that this is going to be linked to a lot of the, uh, the legalization of, of, of marijuana and medical marijuana. And that you will find a lot of people ma making the argument that we got it all wrong and this whole time we should have had pot legal and, uh, and alcohol should have been heavily restricted I hear it a lot. And, and, that, and that what they will say is, okay, we're probably not going to get to the point where we're not going to get back to prohibition. And maybe that wouldn't even be a good idea. Um, maybe. But, uh, but what we should do is significantly increase alcohol taxes just to, to – to, and they will, they will frame it basically as a, a – they will make the public health argument that this is going to save tens of thousands of lives and then it's really about, you know, sort of – and that that's the – and that that's the direction that they want to go. And so I think that over the next – Five or ten years, we will that uh, that we will see uh, a lot more of that and a lot more of that being discussed than we have uh, than has happened over the last decade or so. Yeah, I mean, uh, ultimately, what the research shows is that alcohol is like any ordinary commodity. Yes, when you raise the price, people drink less. But unfortunately, it's not the abusive drinker that you would want to drink less. It's the light to moderate drinker for whom there could, in fact, be positive health benefits. So you know, public health tends to get it wrong when they advocate for higher taxes because, you know, you're really not impacting the abusive drinker. Right, yeah, they're going to continue drinking the same amount and perhaps yeah, less that's, healthily. that's not a public perhaps problem. Perhaps cheaper that's, stuff. That's, <laughs> you do yeah, see a lot exactly. of, yes. Uh, yeah, it's, it's very much a personal problem. It's not a, you know, it's not a communicable disease. You can't treat right. it in the same way. Absolutely. Do we have any questions here in the audience? Um, all right. Right here, front row. 
that's you. Yes, we'll have mics coming around. Please wait for the mic because otherwise they can't hear it online. What were the original causes, societal causes, economic causes, whatever, of prohibition? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, obviously there is a temperance movement that uh, goes back you know, decades before the actual implementation of prohibition. Uh, ultimately, uh, what they are concerned about is, yes, there, were, there are people uh, who should not drink. There are people who do abuse alcohol. Uh, the thought behind prohibition is that we can have this one-size-fits-all model that will end all problems, that uh, if, if there are some people who have a drinking problem, nobody should drink. And there are all sorts of uh, or uh, advertised public benefits. Uh, and there were some people that claimed this is going to increase worker productivity phenomenally. And you know, so it was kind of sold along those lines. That was the original reason, uh, it was well, we have a societal problem, uh, let's have this draconian solution to try to solve it. So temperance w existed long before prohibition, um, and it started as a movement that wasn't strictly and exclusively focused on regulation and on outlawing alcohol. Instead, the, the, they, they used uh, what they t called at the time moral suasion. It was, well, if you're a good person, you won't drink and you'll understand that being a good person means not drinking. And so there was a just sort of a heavy kind of, it, all of this was laced with, uh, with moralism. And part of it, in addition to that, was that pre-prohibition, drinking was mostly a male activity. And basic, and so I, I actually, I went in the course of, uh, of researching this article, I had a uh, spirits historian who is also a bar owner um, make the argument to me that prohibition was terrible, but it did one good thing, which was bring women into bars. Um, and as, <laughs> as 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 a man, uh, but also as a, 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 a many women, I think I think this is a good thing. Um, but what he said to me, if you have never, you know, I just I feel so sorry for for men who never got the opportunity to drink with women. Um, and so, and I think that's a great thing, right? Um, but so. But this was uh, the the temperance movement was really bound up in this idea that alcohol made men uh, people of bad character and it dragged their character down, and that it was destroying families and destroying the ability of men to uh, to keep jobs and to work, uh, and so. That was a huge just sort of a part of the social argument that was happening beforehand. And you also have to remember that prohibition wasn't, it, yes, federally it was, a, it was a, a thing that happened overnight at all at once, but there were already states and localities that had, that had basically instituted prohibition. Tennessee uh, was a, went, uh, basically had a state level prohibition. I think it's in, starting in 1909, possibly 1911, but, uh, but years before federal prohibition happened, actually uh, there's, and there were a bunch of distillers that had to move to uh, to Kentucky and Indiana as a result, and so uh, this was something that was. There were a bunch of forces in play, and so part of it was the sort of the, the moral and social argument about men uh, and male character, and part of it was uh, was you know states were already kind of pursuing the legal regime. It's actually kind of interesting. Um, Tamil Nadu, which is a state in South India where my family's from, has been moving in a pro prohibition direction over the last few years. And um, one of the big arguments that was very popular there was also one of the arguments that was popular, the temperance movement, which was if we get rid of alcohol, 
men won't abuse their wives and we won't have rape. Right. So and of course, like the feminist movement there mean, immediately blew up and said, that's not the cause, but. This was, uh, this was part of the argument around prohibition was that it, would that it would make men better providers and make them more gentle around their families and that it would sort of spark massive social change. And in fact, uh, problem drinkers continued to drink. They just drank stuff that was worse. They got arrested for it. They got involved in crime. And occasionally, they drank wood alcohol and went blind or died. Yeah, which still happens all over the world, of course. Um, so I'd like to take a quick question from Twitter, actually. Um, can you give an example of how modern prohibition has affected you personally? Um, and it says, for me, it's French cheeses. <laughs> While you guys know, oh no. So, no. I mean, I, the bar I worked at in college, I wasn't a bartender, uh, but I was a, a server at a beach bar in Florida uh, for, for a, a number of summers. Um, and the cocktails there were Florida beach cocktails. And it gave me, it like turned me off uh, of liquor and, uh, and, and it turned me off of the idea of cocktails for years because the stuff that, I mean, it was tasty in a certain way, but it was made incredibly sloppily with the absolute cheapest spirits that you could possibly buy. Because, I mean, there was, there was nobody was drinking it because it was uh, this stuff because it was like great liquor. They were drinking it because they were at a 600 seat uh, bar with a you know, cover band um, and you, the, you could write on the walls and had live alligators because Florida. Um, <laughs> and, and so like, I just, like, that to me was my first exposure to mixed drinks and to, uh, and, and to like thinking about, oh, this is what a cocktail is and this is how people use spirits. And so I basically didn't drink any liquor until I was almost 30 as a result. Um, I was like, my formative uh, drinking years were all where there was drinking beer um, and like, I missed out, like, you know, that's, that's like many whiskeys that I could have had. <laughs> I would say personally, uh, living in Virginia, every evening when I come up out of the metro system, uh, within three, 400 yards, there are three different places where I can buy beer or wine, but I can't buy spirits. Uh, you know, very often, you, know, you don't just want a glass of wine, you want something more interesting. Uh, so as a result, that's how it affects me personally every day. Great, thank you. I think I saw some more hands in the audience. Um, second row. Wasn't the whole movement to raise the drinking age uh, back which I think really peaked in the 80s because a lot of states, including D.C., had a 18, uh, and New York had an 18-year-old, and that all changed. Wasn't that a, an example of the refusal to learn the lessons of prohibition? I mean, look at the college drinking scene today. How, how effective is the uh, raising the drinking age? How effective has that been? I, I mean, I think you can look at uh, the under-21 population, and in particular at college students, the, the 18, 19, 20-year-olds, that is the place where prohibition still exists. And what, what does drinking look like on college campuses? It looks like binge drinking of bad liquor. That's what prohibition gave us, and that's what prohibition continues to give us. Uh, and so it, it doesn't stop people from drinking, and it doesn't stop people from drinking dangerously. 
In fact, it means because they are at, because uh, there is it's because it's illicit and because there is a uh, a legal risk associated with drinking. And you saw this during prohibition as well that people drink. They they tend to drink fast. They tend to drink a lot when they do drink. Um, you know, you uh, you uh, go back to the speakeasies and the and the cocktails that they served were often two or three ounces of uh, of, of mixed crappy spirits. Uh, and part of the reason for that was that they wanted something that you could shoot quickly in case that somebody saw the cops were coming. And that's basically what college drinking looks like now with uh, a, a little more toga. <laughs> uh, you know, I would say, obviously, we don't really have a stake in what exactly the drinking age is. Uh, it's up to the state. But what I should say is that anytime you have differential a ages for spirits, beer, and wine, the message you're really sending is somehow that beer and wine are non-intoxicating, mm -hmm. which is a very, very dangerous message, which is what you had in a lot of instances prior to them forcing everyone, all states, to raise the legal drinking age to 21. Very dangerous message. Uh, and I would add that uh, part, of the, part of the drinking age is that virtually all states make it illegal for parents to give their kids alcohol. Not and, Texas. Uh, so it's, I believe, uh, when I was, in, when I was uh, serving in Florida, we were warned about the Texas people and the Louisiana people <laughs> who would come, and they would expect to be able to buy their kids a drink, their 15- or 16-year-old uh, kids, at, 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 at the restaurant. And we were told, no, you, gotta, you can't do that. It's like, you're, you know, they, they do undercover busts. People will come in, and, you know, like, so it was a big deal. But what does that do? That teaches kids, it, it, well, it sort of doesn't teach kids how to drink and how to drink responsibly. And it means that they can't do it in a sort of, in a protected, supervised environment with their parents. And I think that that, uh, in addition to the restriction on, just the age restriction itself, is a big part of the reason why when kids start drinking, when teenagers start drinking at 16 or 18 or 20 or whenever it is, uh, too, far too often, their first and formative experiences with drinking are drinking bad stuff and drinking way too much of it in dangerous uh, environments. Absolutely, and I think. And, right. Yeah, and 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 it doesn't. I, I'm not saying that it would absolutely stop college binge drinking. College kids are college kids, uh, but it would significantly reduce. I think the uh, the desire to do something that is danger that is uh, interestingly dangerous because it is illegal. You know, my wife is actually French, and you know, she went her first two years of college were in Paris. And she said when she came to the United States, she was shocked because she said in Paris, yes, we drank, not all the time, sometimes. But if you became inebriated, it was something shameful, where she said when she got to the United States, for unfortunately for a lot of college students, it was almost a badge of honor. So I think the culture that teaches proper drinking is, is probably much better off. Yeah, certainly. And I um, just to speak once more to federalism, what's kind of interesting as well is, as you said, those laws were largely passed um, the 80s and 90s. And uh, what's very interesting is sort of an attack on federalism because it was tied to federal highway funding, where there wasn't interest in passing these laws in these states until they threatened to cut the purse strings on any sort of interstate highway going through. Yeah, states were quasi-coerced through budgetary inducements. Quasi-coerced is a good word for it. <laughs> um, so we are coming up on the end, but I think we have time for one more quick question. Um, sure. 
Uh, I'm, I'm Greg. I'm from the uh, People's Republic of Montgomery County, where we have uh, state-run <laughs> or county-run liquor stores. My question is, um, what would be the uh, optimal uh, kind of licensing scheme or structure? Uh, next to us, we have PG County, where they have uh, liquor licenses. They, they grant liquor licenses to individual uh, container stores. Um, but that's led to perverse incentives where politicians are getting bribed and then ending up um, removed from office and, and, and trapped. Um, so what, is there a way to like democratize that or we have this, is there a way to get the government out but also to, um, I mean, get the, get, the, get, get the government out of the individual retail stores but then also kind of democratize the, the way liquor licenses are distributed and also the argument against, in, in my county, the argument against having private stores is they say, well, it'll just live, lead to a proliferation of stores everywhere. Is, is that the case um, or, I mean, certainly the government can control how many stores they want to license, right? Uh, Proliferation yeah. of stores does not seem like a bad thing to me. Right. But. Yeah, actually, we've been doing a lot of work in Montgomery County over the last couple of years, and there have been some very positive developments. Obviously, this, the county still has monopoly on spirits, beer and wine distribution or wholesaling. Uh, they currently have a monopoly on, only on spirits sales, Beer and wine, private operators can sell. Now, we recently got the law changed to allow spirits to start selling in uh, Montgomery County stores that have beer and wine licenses. Uh, not all of them, and the rules are being uh, written. I'm not sure when exactly all this is going to be done. I don't recall the, the exact time frame. Uh, but that is very much good news for Montgomery County. Now, the bad news for Montgomery County is that they recently, for a long time, you know, since it is obviously a monopoly, they had a very, very specific pricing mechanism that they had to uh, use to, in which to price their product. Well, and that, obviously, since it is a monopoly, you would want that. Uh, unfortunately, they argued that, well, we want to be like private operators, and be able to mark up our product as we see fit. Well, what they've now become is an unconstrained state-sponsored monopoly or county-sponsored monopoly. Before they had a constraint on their pricing of some type of uh, pricing formula, that doesn't exist anymore. And in fact, it's fascinating. Uh, Jarrett Dieterle of R Street wrote an excellent paper I highly recommended. Uh, a couple weeks ago it came out where he looked at a lot of the monopoly states and he looked at their pricing formula and he kind of figured out that, you know what, a lot of these states really what they're imposing is not a markup but it's an illegal tax. So a lot of these states, uh, according to Jarrett, are, you know, they're very much open to a, to a lawsuit right now. So long-winded way to say there are good things happening in, in Montgomery County, so just, just keep an eye out for them. It's good to hear. In uh, one or two sentences, what lesson or what takeaway would you like the folks here in the audience and online to get from this discussion we just had here today? The long tail effects of prohibition were a lot more than the kind of direct uh, uh, effects that we all know about in terms of crime and, uh, and, and restrictions. And in general, prohibitions of all kinds, whether they're on alcohol or whether they're on other substances, have these unexpected effects not only on consumer choice and on what businesses can do and on how money flows, but on the kind of the, the fabric of our lives and on the culture that binds all of us together. Uh, and that's something that we, that's hard to see when you pass these laws, 
but uh, in retrospect, um, in, is in some ways uh, the most important and most lasting effect uh, of, a, of a law like prohibition. Well, obviously, the effects of prohibition weren't all bad. Somebody mentioned earlier that if it weren't for prohibition, there are all sorts of gangster movies that we would not have. <laughs> I mean, think of, think of life without being able to watch The Godfather. Uh, but beyond that, uh, the laws have changed for the better over the course of the last 15 or 20 years. There's been a lot of positive change. We still have a long way to go. Uh, the good news is, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the regulators do seem on board. They're looking for guidance. There are a lot of vested interests that you know, the industry is really going to have to work its way through. But ultimately, it's up to the consumer. If you want to see real change in your alcohol laws in your given state, it's really up to you to talk to your legislator because they hear from the vested interests far more often than they hear from you. So if it's important to you, talk to your legislator. Thank you. And on that note, we are all out of time. So thank all of you for coming. And thanks to our panelists for joining in on this really interesting discussion, in my view, at least. Um, Please make sure for all of you here that you're on the uh, Cato Digital mailing list. Uh, and I hope I'll see you on Wednesday, January 24th. Uh, we'll be having a discussion on libertarian lessons from Burning Man. And um, after this, I hope that we can continue the conversation this evening in Cato's Winter Garden. Um, in addition to our normal, uh, our normal bar, we'll have a secondary bar with special Prohibition-themed cocktails from uh, Peter's Reason article. And thank you to Discus for donating the spirits. <laughs>